uh, reading the passage for today's sermon series. Tyler will be uh, preaching in a few moments, uh, starting in Exodus six twenty-eight. Something musical about those pages turning, but it is on the screen if you just want to follow along. Um, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them 
as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. That's the reading of God's word today. Good morning, everyone. Hi. (laughs) This fall, we've been preaching through the book of Exodus as a church. And Exodus, in the simplest sense, it just means way out. That's like a literal rendition of it. And so what we've been looking at is the way that God is bringing his people out of Egypt, the Israelites. And as we look at that redemption, as we look at the ways in which God brings the Israelites out, what we're seeking to find is what are the ways in which God brings us out of our own captivity, out of our own slavery, and frees us as well. So last week we got a chance to talk about how God promised deliverance to the Israelites, and he promised in the deliverance that they would know him. That was kind of the key passage we worked on last week that Greg preached on, that the Israelites would know that God is the Lord. And so this week, what we get to see is that not only the Israelites would know that God is the Lord, but the Egyptians as well. And so we're going to see that that happens, though, through both judgment and redemption. So in our passage this morning that Dan read for us, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at God revealing his purpose, God putting his purpose into action, and then God revealing our purpose. And so those are the three things that we'll see as we look at this passage this morning. So let me pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you for your church. For this family that we get to be a part of, God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Draw us closer to yourself and closer to one another. And it's in your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So our passage this morning begins with kind of a familiar theme. So if you look at your Bibles, you'll see in Exodus 6, verse 28, it says like the most familiar thing we've seen in Exodus, which is Moses doubted God. So Moses doubts God, and here's what he says. He says, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And I think this is the fourth time that Moses has asked essentially the same question. And I've only preached on Exodus twice thus far, but I can already see that doubt and Moses are something that it's just something he can't quite kick. And so while we're going to look at a lot of other different things this morning as we look at our text, just as an underlying theme, know that Moses is doubting God. And rather than God saying, I'm just going to discard you, I'm going to get rid of you because you doubt too much, Moses, uh, God seeks to use Moses over and over again. And so when we doubt, just like Moses, as an underlying assumption this morning, I want us to realize that our doubts don't disqualify us from God using us. They establish the fact that God is going to use us. We doubt, Moses doubts, and God gets to use doubters. So that's just this initial verse this morning, the end of chapter 6, and now we jump right into chapter 7. And so here's what God says to Moses in chapter 7. He says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So there's a lot going on in those six verses. But the verse that I want us to hone in on this morning is when God says, Egypt will know that I am the Lord. And it's kind of a, it's a crazy verse for, for Israelites to read especially because they're the ones who are saying this is our God and we get to know him. But what God ends up saying is Egypt is going to know me as well. But what we see is that the Egyptians will know that Egypt, the Egyptians will know that God is who he says he is through two things, through judgment and through redemption. So the first, the first kind of point that we want to make, though, is that God's primary purpose in this world is to make himself known. If we wanted to boil down all of God's purposes in this world, we could boil it down to the simple fact that his goal is to make himself known. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so when God does things in this world, we get to know who he is. And this is how we get to know other people, too. When people do things, when we interact with others, we get to know them. So take me, for example. Grace and I moved to Williamstown like two months ago almost. It's crazy. It's been flying by. And we're all in the process of getting to know each other. And so I would propose that the way that we get to know each other is by me interacting with you and you interacting with me. Every time that I preach or we sit in a small group together or we sit down for coffee or do a meal together, every time that happens, we get to know each other. And each time that happens, you know a little bit more about me and I know a little bit more about you. And so I want to propose that in the simplest sense, getting to know God is the exact same. He does things in our lives and in our communities. We spend time with him and we get to know him. And so remember, our God is a relational God. God is the only, the Christian God is the only God who is three in one. God at his very core is a relationship. There are three persons of the Trinity. And before he created any of this world, before he created any of us, God was three in one living and dwelling together, three in one and being in a relationship. And so when we are doing relationships together, what we're doing is just being who God made us to be. And so when God says in this passage, my primary purpose in all of my work in this world is to make myself known and to be in relationship. He's just saying, this is what I've been doing since before you were even created, being in a relationship with you. And here's what we're going to do now. So. We get to know people by interacting with them. That's one really good way to get to know them. Another way that we get to know them, though, is by hearing stories about them. And this is one of the things we get to do as we look at the Old Testament. We get to hear stories of who God is. And as we hear stories of who he is, we learn who he is. So there are things that are true about who God is that the Egyptians and Israelites learned 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. And those things that were learned are still true for us today. And so we also learn about God and the stories that we learn about him. Now, if I told you, 
I'm going to pick on Brian for a moment. I don't know why. I'm going to pick on Brian Gill for a moment. But so if I told you that I knew, that I know Brian Gill, I was like, guys, I know Brian Gill. And then you proceeded to say, like, well, where does Brian work? And I was like, nah, I don't know. And you asked, well, what does Brian like to do for fun? And I was like, I don't know. I just have no idea. And you asked, where did Brian grow up? And I was like, ah, Kentucky, uh, Missouri, I don't know. If I knew nothing about Brian, you would then go on to say, I don't think you really know Brian super well. And so what I'd want to propose this morning is that our knowledge about someone is connected to our intimate knowledge of them in a relational sense. You wouldn't be very impressed with my friendship with Brian if I knew nothing about him. But on the flip side of that, our relationship with someone is at the core, our knowledge of them in relationship. And I say that because if I told you that I knew Michael Jordan, you guys would be like, wow, that's really impressive. How how did you get to know him? Like, I know he played for the Bulls and you lived in Chicago, but like, how did you get to know Michael Jordan? And then I was like, well, when I say I know Michael Jordan, what I mean by that is that I have looked at a lot of pictures of him on the Internet and I have learned all about his family. I know all about his favorite things, his birthday. I know everything about him. You would be like, you don't know Michael Jordan. You just stalk Michael Jordan. So our our goal in our Christian life isn't to, isn't to stop God. It's to get to know him. It's to have a relationship with him. And so the most important thing is that we know him in relationship. But what the point I was trying to make with Brian is that all the information about him adds to our relationship with him. So there's two sides of that coin here. We've got to know him in a relationship, but we also have to know something about him for us to really have a relationship with him either. So what we learn this morning is really what John 17:3 says. It says, now this is eternal life that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he, has, whom he has sent. God boils down eternal life into just knowing who God is. And again, that knowing, it's knowing about him, but more than that, it's knowing him in an intimate relationship. So knowledge of God we see in verse 5 ends up being, it ends up happening in this Exodus story in two ways. And so here are the two ways. In verse 5, it says that knowledge of God will happen. It says, knowledge of God will happen when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and when I bring out the people of Israel, Israel from among them. So we see this morning there are two means for us to get to know God. One is the judgment is when God stretches out his hand against Egypt. And the other way that we get to know God is the redemption, when he brings Israel out from slavery. So, judgment and redemption, then, are our two kind of twin means for getting to know God. And we're going we're gonna to flesh this out, but here at the start, it kind of sounds like there's a positive and a negative. Judgment sounds kind of negative, and then the positive one, redemption, sounds really, really great. And so what I want to say is that initially you might say judgment. How would, how would you know someone in judgment? But I want, to, I want to limit that a little bit and say if you only know about what someone loves, if you only know, for instance, with me that I love, like, 
New England. I love running. And I love chocolate chip cookies. Those will be my three identifying things that I love. You know a portion of me, but you would also know me in a, in a different way if you knew that I hated flatland mayonnaise and jeans, for instance. So if you learned either of those things, you would know something about me. You would know what I love and what I hate. And so for our purpose this morning, knowing what someone hates is still knowing them. And in fact, if someone loves things, they also have to hate things as well. And we'll flesh that out later. But what I want to say right now is that knowledge goes both ways. And this is why the Egyptians are going to come to know God in both judgments, by both what he hates, and by what he loves, his people, by redemption. So what God is saying is that the reason for the plagues, and this is the story Dan read for us this morning, the first plague, the reason for the plagues is twofold then. First, it's to judge the Egyptians, and then secondly, it's to free the Israelites, because God is known in his judgment and redemption. And if you remember back in Exodus chapter 5, what Pharaoh says initially is he says, who is Yahweh? I don't know who Yahweh is. And Yahweh is, is an Old Testament name for God. So what Pharaoh is asking is, who is God? I don't even know who that guy is. And what we see this morning is what God is going to say is, this is who I am. This is who I love. And these are the things that I hate. And you're going to see me play this out. So let's talk a little bit about this judgment to start. Now, If you've been reading along with us in Exodus, Pharaoh has enslaved hundreds of thousands of people, and he's killed thousands of children. Pharaoh has, he only cares about money, profit, control. He doesn't care about people at all. And so Pharaoh stands in this sort of absolute opposition to who God is. So God is the creator, sustainer, and provider of the world. And Pharaoh is the opposite of that. He's like the anti-creator. God is producing life and Pharaoh is destroying life. And so we see this tension that they come out. And what we ultimately are going to see is that God is going to let Pharaoh receive the consequences of his anti-creation behavior. And anti-creation sounds like a made-up word, and it is. But I think there's something to it because what Pharaoh is doing is the exact antithesis of what God is doing. And so what we see is that harm is never done in like a vacuum. There's no such thing as a private sin. This is kind of something that's popular in our culture and world today. This idea that whatever is right for me is right for me, and no one else can touch my own individualness and my own individual sovereignty. But what God is saying here is that the things that Pharaoh is doing wrong have deep effects on everyone around him. And so we can pick this up in Colossians 1.20 if we go to the New Testament. It says, Jesus made peace by the blood of the cross. And that peace, it's this Hebrew concept of shalom. And so you probably, maybe you've heard that word before. People also use it as a greeting um, in Jewish culture, saying shalom. But shalom is like wholeness, soundness, and peace. Shalom is everything being as it should be. 
And so what we see with sin is that sin just shatters shalom. Because sin doesn't only affect just us, it affects everything around us. And so as much as we want to think, as much as we want to think that our little sins are like private things, that our little moments of selfishness or our little moments of greed or our little ways in which we don't love someone, as much as we want to think that those are private, that those are all just inside of us, they aren't. They affect deeply the ones around you. And I'm guessing the, some of you who are married or have kids, you probably know this in a different way than others do. Because you see, the, when your sin affects the people around you, the people who are closest to you get the worst of that. The, your spouses get the worst of that. Your kids get the worst of that. But it's true for those of us who aren't married, who are single as well, because the sins affect your community, everything about you. Because even if someone doesn't know the sins that are, you're struggling with, they still affect everyone around you. And so in our culture and in our world, we're like, my sin doesn't touch anybody. I can do whatever I want. But the reality is, it affects everyone. Whether those sins are like Pharaoh's sins, where he's killing thousands of people, or whether they're just little moments of selfishness, those sins affect everyone around us. And so before we really rib on Pharaoh and say, this guy is the worst, he deserves to be judged, I think we have to search our own hearts for a moment and say, we deserve to be judged too. What Hebrews tells us is, in Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And so the question for us, for Pharaoh this morning is, Who's going to absorb the cost of the sin? If sin affects everyone around us, then it has to be, someone has to absorb the cost of that sin. When you sin, the people around you absorb that cost, whether it's your spouse or your roommate or your friends, they absorb the cost of the sin that you have done. And so Pharaoh's question this morning that we're going to walk with him as he goes through is, Am I going to absorb the cost, or am I going to let God absorb the cost? That's the question. Will Pharaoh stubbornly resist and say, no, 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 I'm going to fight this to the bitter end, or will he let God absorb the cost of his sin? And so in this wild way, Moses isn't just a mediator for the Israelites. He's a mediator for Pharaoh as well. God also sends Moses to say, Pharaoh, You should stop doing your terrible things. And if you let my people go, judgment is not going to come down upon you. Because here's what it says later in Isaiah. It says, I will call Egypt, I will call Egypt my people. The Egyptians are not outside of God's sphere of love. But the question is, God is known through judgment and redemption. Are they going to only know God through judgment, or will they experience his love through redemption as well? And so, I mean, praise God, there's another side to this coin. It's not just God's judgment in which he's known. It's also his redemption. And so, when God says that both the Israelites and the Egyptians will know him because he will bring the people of Israel out from among them, one of the cool things about this story is it's super public. Like, God isn't choosing to work in the shadows or just to free the Israelites with a little flick of the wrist. He's choosing to do this publicly in this massive, grand way. 
And this is how God decides to work sometimes, with amazing stories. And some of you have these kind of stories that are just amazing what God has done in your life. And what those stories are meant to do are to push other people to know God. That's what those stories are meant to do. And here's what I want to say. That, on the one hand, God is a God who judges sin. This is true of God, and as much as we sometimes don't like it, and as much as our culture doesn't like it, it is true that God judges sin. But it's also true that God redeems people from sin. And in our world today, even in Christian circles, oftentimes we have the tendency to want to emphasize one of these points over the other. You probably all know churches that really, really want to emphasize God's love, but don't want to talk anything about God's judgment. And I get that. It's, it's attractive in some sense to say, oh, we can have this God who just loves everyone so much and who doesn't judge anything. There's a lot of churches like that in New England, especially. They want all love and no judgment. On the other side, though, there are churches who want a lot of judgment. There are churches who want to say, we should live such a holy life and such a, yeah, a life that is so free of sin that God is going to come and judge all those people and it's going to be awesome when it happens. There are churches like that as well. And we have this trouble of how do we go in between these two twin peaks that really what they ultimately do is, is bifurcate, separate God's character, who God is. If you have his love without his justice, you don't really have his love. And if you have his justice without his love, you don't really have his justice. Because at the core, if you remember what I was saying before, if you really love someone, you also hate when bad things happen to them. If you really love your kids, you're going to despise when something bad happens to them. And you're going to fight for them. And there are going to be things that stand in opposition to them that you want to end. So you can't have love without judgment. Because a God who loves everything doesn't really love anything. But we need his love with judgment too. And I know our tendency sometimes as Christians especially, and this is like a pragmatic way in which we live type of thing, sometimes our tendencies as Christians is to say, if I just keep getting better and better, if I just keep becoming holier and holier, then I won't really need, I, won't, I can judge myself essentially. I, God won't owe me anything because of what an awesome life I've produced. And a lot of times we're trying to move on to like, Christianity, like the second grade edition, when there's only a first grade edition. The first grade edition is Jesus died for your sins, and we're over here trying to get to the second edition, which is like, oh, now I can earn my salvation. Like a lot of times we get saved by Jesus, and then we say, well, what's, what's next? What's after Jesus? But in reality, the whole thing is just about Jesus and realizing how much we need him. And so we, we end up wanting to judge ourselves because we think we can come up with this beautiful life that God won't need to judge, and we can judge ourselves. But for the purpose of our text this morning, I just want you to think about those two twin poles, judgment and love, and the fact that they have to go together. They have to go together. So, here's the reason why they have to go together. 
Because the defining thing in the Christian story, the defining thing that you can't be a Christian without is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate bringing together of judgment and love. There is nothing outside of those two things that happens there. And God's greatest act of judgment is also his greatest act of love. Jesus crucified for our sins in order for us to be saved is judgment and love at the same time. And that's the core of Christianity. So whenever we try to separate these two things, we're trying to separate the very defining feature of Christianity, which is Jesus on the cross. So as we continue in our story this morning in verse 8, we're going to get to see how God is going to put into action these things. And so the first thing that we see is uh, Moses and Aaron, they walk in to see Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does exactly what God tells them he would. He says, prove yourselves by working a miracle. And so Moses and Pharaoh, if you're here a couple weeks ago when I preached, I preached on this. Moses and Pharaoh, they're like, okay, we get to show a miracle. We, God taught us these three. We're going to do one of those ones. And so Moses takes a staff and he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. Kind of weird. I don't know what's going on, but that's what happens. Staff into serpent. And the wild thing that happens next in the story, if you're listening, as Dan was reading, is... Pharaoh brings his magicians and his, like, secret magic people over, and they do the same thing. They take their staffs, and they throw them onto the ground, and they become serpents. And that just seems super awkward, <laughs> because, because they, were, they were, like, counting on these signs to be what would show Pharaoh that, that God was real. These were, like, the signs that they're counting on, and now they do it, and... The, the magicians are like, oh, we can do that too. Like, we have staffs. We can throw them into, we can turn them into snakes. That's great. And so a lot of, like, commentators, people who, like, try to explain what's happening in the Bible, a lot of them try to explain it away. And they're like, well, you see there are these magicians, and they had their staffs. And probably right as they threw them on the ground, like, a bunch of snakes just slithered by. And it was easily confused. Like, they, they thought they had turned into snakes, but they didn't actually. And evil has no power. Um, And so that's one possible explanation that I think is terrible. The The more reasonable application in my mind is that what the text is trying to tell us here is that evil has power. Evil has power in this world. And evil's power here is to convince Pharaoh that he has no need of God or of God's mercy. And if you notice, when, when we continue to walk through Exodus, every time that the magicians are able to replicate one of the signs or one of the plagues, every single time, it only results in more bad stuff. Like, it's not like the magicians are able to make the serpent turn back into a staff and to be like, hey, no more snakes, this is great. Instead, it just results in more snakes. In a moment, they're going to turn water into blood, and the magicians can do that too. They can make more blood. And then they're going to be able to turn to make more frogs. It's like the only thing that the magicians can do is create more bad for the people of Egypt. 
More snakes, more blood, more frogs. Evil has power, but the power that evil has is only to corrupt and deceive and destroy. But it is power. Here's what it says in Ephesians 6. It says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I want to ask you a simple question this morning, and that's, when was the last time you thought about how evil was assaulting you? How evil was affecting your life? And I don't mean this in like there's a a demon behind every tree or shrub or something kind of way. I mean this in the, it says in Ephesians 6 that our, our struggle is not primarily against flesh and blood, Our struggle is not primarily against people. It's against evil spiritual forces. And there's this funny thing that happens like 100 to 200 years ago. So after the Enlightenment in history, um, people started to think in the world like, oh, we can explain away everything. We don't need religion. We can explain away everything. And the church responded in various ways to this, like the fact that people started to feel like they could explain everything. But one of the things a lot of churches did in this moment, and especially a lot of American churches, is they kept all the God and angel stuff, but they got rid of all the Satan and demon stuff. They're like, the God and angel stuff is good. That's good. People love angels. They love, like, tooth fairies. Like, they love that kind of stuff. We can hold on to that. But the... The Satan and demon stuff, that sounds a little weird, so maybe let's like emphasize that a little bit less. And this is a common thing, especially in American churches. And so my question this morning is, what might evil be doing against you? Because if Satan's purpose in this world is to corrupt and deceive and destroy, he has, he has that goal with each of us. And That means that the beauty of you imaging God in this world is something that God loves and that Satan hates. And if we just try to get rid of Satan, we're missing a part of this story too. It's like trying to get rid of God's judgment and just keep his love. We're missing a part of the story if we just say there's no real evil. It's just us trying to slowly become better. And we're not really being honest about the world that we live in either. Then we're just... We're just sounding this like, oh, well, we live in this nice little town in the Berkshires, and where would evil be here? There's real evil. And so I, I want to give you one like profoundly practical way to think about this this morning. So when we, when we fall into sin, one of, one of Satan's most common names is the accuser. That's like what one of the renditions of his name means, the accuser. And so I think oftentimes as Christians, we, we have, you know, you have your conscience and you have this like running narrative of thoughts in your mind. And when we fall into sin, a lot of times the thoughts in our mind start to go something like, you're the worst. I can't believe you made that mistake. You're terrible. You're a failure. You're ugly you're stupid, whatever those things are, we start to run those things in our minds. For me, one of mine is always like, you're lazy, you're lazy, you're lazy. 
That's like one of the things that runs through my mind. And I think sometimes we start to, we're, we become so familiar with, those, with that voice that's telling us this thing that isn't true about us. We become so familiar with that voice that we start to just say, well, that's either our voice or that's God's voice. And we never stop to think, maybe that's Satan's voice. Maybe that's the voice of evil in this world. And I, this might be like a, a, a weird thing for you, and you might be like crossing your arms and like leaning back against me, and that's okay. But I just, want you to, I just want you to say, what we're dealing with in the text here is the reality that evil has power. And what we see in Ephesians 6 is that we are fighting against that evil power. And so I want to assert that potentially some of those, some of those things that you hear are actually evil working against you. Because what we see in Romans 2 is that God's, God's work, God's kindness leads to repentance. What leads to repentance isn't God's, like, condemnation. It says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when you think words of condemnation to yourself, that is not God's voice. And sometimes we want to say, oh, but that's like good guilt, and it's like going to produce to make me more holy. But what I want to say is that God is kind, and how we discern the voice of God from the voice of evil is it, God's voice is always kind. You can think about the woman at the well. When God speaks to people, he is kind to them. He might bring judgment. He might bring judgment on the sin in their life. That is true. But those statements are always in kindness. So we can talk about this later, but I just want to put that out there, that the text this morning is showing us that evil has real power in this world. And it's going to show how evil is going to defeat that power, or how God's going to defeat that power of evil. But we can't just write it off and say, no, 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 in, today, in today's world, evil doesn't affect me at all. I'm just, it's just me and God, and any mistakes that I make, they're on me. There's nothing outside of me. I think that is just a product of our like modern enlightenment. We wanted to get rid of Satan and the demons. Okay, moving on. So the funny thing that happens um, next, and, and this is an answer in, in some ways to our question, the funny thing that happens next, so remember, we, we were sidetracked for a moment, but there's like a bunch of snakes slithering around on the ground. So there's a bunch of snakes slithering around on the ground, and what happens is Aaron's snake swallows up the snakes of the magicians. Pretty cool. It's kind of like an answer. It's less of an awkward moment. And Moses and Aaron are probably like, yes, like little fist bump. Thank goodness our snakes won the snake battle. Um, so here's, the, here's a little cool thing. The Hebrew word for swallow um, that shows up right there when it says Aaron's snake swallowed the magician's snake. When that Hebrew word for swallow, it shows up again in Exodus 15, which is right as the Egyptians get thrown into the sea. The Israelites are crossing the Red Sea. The Egyptians get swallowed up by the sea. And so what we see in this is evil gets swallowed up by good. And so any conversation we have about evil, the power it has in the world, we always have to come back to this simple truth that evil is always being swallowed up by good. And that's the truth of the gospel. So take that, take that to the bank that Pharaoh's judgment and Israel's redemption is going to be brought to completion by evil being swallowed up. So now we move to the first plague. 
And so the, the staff turning into the snake, it's often thought about as like a preface to the plagues. Um, and now the ten plagues come along, and we're just going to briefly mention the first one this morning. And so it's in verses 14 to 25, if you want to look at us. But in verse 14, uh, it tells us that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And so Moses, this is what he's told to say. He's told to say, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And again, the magicians, they match this sign. In verse 22, um, they match this sign. And so every little bit of water in like the entire country is turned into blood. Sounds super wild. Um, And so what ends up happening in verse 24, it says the Egyptians just start like digging along the Nile. Um, They just start digging along, you know. The other really cool thing, it doesn't mention here, but it'll come up later, is that uh, Goshen, like not Goshen, New York, but Goshen, it was a little place in Israel or in Egypt. Goshen is where all the all the Israelites are. And none of the plagues end up happening in Goshen, which is kind of wild that like there's there's this little pocket of protection around Goshen. And I think that's a cool it's a cool thing to remember that as all these plagues, all this judgment comes down. There's this little pocket of redemption in, in Goshen. But here's the verse. In verse 21, it says, There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And so, if you know the story of Exodus, you might be starting to make some connections because there's a significance to blood, right? Blood ends up showing up in the Passover. Um, they sacrifice a lamb and they put blood over the doorpost so that God passes over and doesn't judge the people of Israel. And then there's blood because God ends up killing the firstborn of all of Egypt. And so we come back to this like really, really harsh reality in Scripture, which is that sin requires judgment. And so while like the bloody water is definitely inconvenience, like if we just started turning on the taps and we're like, ah, it's blood. This is really problematic. I'm super thirsty. Um, Like my cup of water is blood. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to get through this sermon. Like there's like an inconvenience to this water into blood. It's definitely unfortunate. But what it foreshadows is absolutely terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying because it it what it foreshadows is there's going to be judgment on all the people. And so Pharaoh, we start to see he has this option. Pharaoh has this option to either take the judgment upon himself to absorb the cost of the judgment or to let God absorb that cost. Or to let God absorb that cost. And if he insists on rejecting God, There's going to be, as verse 21 says, blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but it's going to be way worse than blood into water. And so my third and final point, um, we're going to backtrack just a moment um, to verse 16. So third and final point, God reveals our purpose. And here's what it says in verse 16. It says, and you shall say to him, meaning Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. So there's this game, um, 
the camp I worked at, Deerfoot Lodge, I worked there for like six summers, and there's this game that's like everyone's favorite game, um, and it's called Trench Dodgeball. And so it's like, some of you know it already, but it's like, it's like dodgeball in that you're just hocking balls at, at other people as hard as you can. Um, and so it's like dodgeball in that way, but in Trench Dodgeball, if you get hit, you go from your side and you go around to like captivity on the other side. And so you're just standing behind all like the other team right here. And so if you get hit, you go into captivity. I'll use that word because it'll really make my analogy work. So you go into captivity. You go into slavery, maybe, one might say. So the way, the way to get out is, is if, a, if someone on your team throws you a ball and you catch it, you can, you can get out and go back in. Or the other way is if a ball rolls into your trench, you can then throw it and hit somebody, and then you get back in. Now, the whole point... We play this game a lot. I've played this game like a hundred times. And so the strategy is especially, so especially when like the staff would play the campers. So there's, there'd be like 40 staff and there'd be like 200 children. And it was just pure chaos. And so in those moments, the important thing was like, you got you to gotta get your people out of captivity. Keep using that word. Um, you got to get your people out of captivity so that they can join your team again. So that they can, like, help with the mission of what you're doing. And the worst thing was when you got someone back in and you, like, use your effort to save them. And then they come back in and they are super unhelpful. Or I even, when we were playing with kids one time, like, I got a kid back in and he, like, got back in. And then he went to the camp store and got an ice cream. <laughs> and I was like, buddy, <laughs> we got a war to win over here. But so... <laughs> So I say that because the goal of God freeing us from captivity is that we would serve him and help. And so a lot of times in our Christian lives, like we get freed from captivity and from slavery. And Jesus has done this amazing thing in our life. And we're like, okay, I'm going to go get an ice cream. Like that's what I'm going to do with my life now. And so when God frees us, when he saves us, he has a claim on us. That we would start to do the things in our, in our life that would be cooperating with him. We've been redeemed and freed in order to participate in God's work. Because we're his beloved children. I was chatting with Caleb the other day. Um, and, and we were talking about how as God's children, we get to participate in the work that our father's doing. And that means the work isn't all up to us. But he's freed us to participate in that work. And Here's what I want to propose to further connect this point. The work that God is calling us to participate in is work of defeating evil and showing God's love in this world. Like there is real evil in this world that we should be fighting against. Like oppression and injustice and brokenness in families. And those are things that we should be fighting against. Fighting for marriages. Fighting for like kids who don't have enough resources, like we should be fighting against evil while also showing God's love. And we get to participate in that work too. Because as Christians, we get to say, that is wrong and let me show God's love to this. Like we get to look injustice in the eye and say, this is wrong. And we get to show God's love in those moments as well. We get to participate in the works of judgment and redemption. So in Luke 4, it's like the thesis statement of uh, Jesus' ministry. 
Um, and he quotes Isaiah in Luke 4, and here's what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what I want to propose is that we have been freed in order to participate in Jesus' work. And rather than just go off and do what we want to do and live this life taking care of ourselves, we've been called to use our resources, our talents, our gifts to serve God and his kingdom. So I want to close by addressing this final, this final piece that I haven't addressed yet this morning, um, which is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In verse 13, it says that still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So I want to close with this question of, are we going to soften our hearts or are we going to harden our hearts? When we see God's works of judgment and redemption, we have this opportunity to either soften our hearts or harden our hearts. And Pharaoh gets this opportunity and later on the Israelites get it too when they're in the wilderness And we get this opportunity now. We can either soften our hearts or harden our hearts. God is working in our lives. He's working in our church. Every time we read scripture, every time we sing songs of worship together, God is working. He's working. So are we going to harden our hearts or are we going to soften our hearts? Because this is what Pharaoh has, this question he has, and he decides, as we're going to see throughout the story, that he's going to harden his heart every single time. And it's interesting, though, this is, this is part of the problem of the text is the 10th hardening, the 10th or 11th, I forget off the top of my head, the 10th or 11th hardening that happens to Pharaoh, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Up until that point, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart or Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but the 10th. Eleventh time, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so there is this truth in play that God is respecting. In in many ways, it seems God is respecting Pharaoh's autonomy in some ways. God is saying, Pharaoh, you can at any point soften your heart and this judgment will stop and I can absorb the cost. Like this is what Jesus is about, absorbing this cost. But Pharaoh hardens his heart along the way. And as Pharaoh's heart gets harder, God hardens his heart as well. And that's a hard truth that we don't have time to unravel right now. But I want to point out that the start always begins with Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But we always have this opportunity to soften our hearts. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning is, will you soften your heart or will you harden your heart? Because God is working in this church, in this town, in this world. And we get the opportunity to participate in that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for revealing yourself through the story of Exodus. Thank you that we get to know you and that knowing you is eternal life. And so, God, I, I'm, we're just so thankful that you judge sin and evil and that you redeem us. Thanks for paying the price for us to be viewed as spotless by sacrificing your spotless son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.